1: Our gospel reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. Well, this is part six, the final part of a multi-part series on how to love one another. This is, loving one another, you see, is a key part of what it means to live our lives as Christians. Learning these ways to love one another is perhaps the greatest difference between being a Christian who gives Christianity a bad name and being a Christian whom other people consider among the best people they've ever met. The first week we discussed the use of prayer as a way to love one another. When you pray for someone, you naturally begin to love them. The second week, we spoke of the need for our physical presence to go forth and be with people. For our very presence is the beginning of friendship and thus of love for one another. The third week, we spoke of our ability to love one another through our gifts for individuals and through the church. And the fourth week, we spoke of loving people through service, which teaches us humbleness and teaches us how to understand and anticipate the needs and wants of those we serve. And the fifth week, I spoke of loving others through our witness for Jesus, which is the ultimate way to love one another, to introduce them to the one person who can bring them eternal life. And today, I plan to speak of loving one another through a few other ways, ways which Jesus taught us, during his life on earth. But let's go back for a moment to when God created people. In Genesis, the Bible says that God created us in the image of God. Now God is present eternally throughout all space and time, a true four-dimensional being. We're like three-dimensional photographs of this four-dimensional being. Each of, us has, each of us is a portrait of God that's been taken at a different place, and a different time, from a different angle. It's like all those photos that we have of Blackwater Falls. They're taken from different angles on different days with the falls in different levels of water, some in the spring, some in the summer, some in the fall or the winter. If we put them all together, all these photos of Blackwater Falls, we assemble them together in time and we begin then to get a glimpse of the real beauty of the falls. Far more than just looking at a single photograph of it. And the same goes with all those different images of God that we call people. If one were missing, we'd be missing a particular angle of God. But the image of God that we each represent also includes, in God's vision, our character. All of our goodness and sin, the give and take in our lives, our conversations and actions, and our love and our hate, and all those aspects that define who we are. And God wants us to be not only a still photo, but our image is to be a video where we're gradually becoming more beautiful every day. Loving God and loving others is the key way we become beautiful. When God appeared to Moses, God had two tasks for Moses. The first task He gave him was to go to Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, and order Pharaoh to release the Israelites from slavery, allowing them to go free and escape from Egypt. And this took some time. But eventually they got free, and after they were free and roaming in the desert between present-day Saudi Arabia and Israel, God gave Moses the second task, which was to teach the people of Israel the law, a series of 613 commands about how to live individually and as a community. The law was the first step to learning how to love themselves, to love God, and to love one another. The law was necessary to explain to the people of Israel and then to the world that simply living as a wild beast, satisfying their own needs by whatever they could get away with, by whatever means, including deceit and violence, that wasn't a good way to live. The law was given to people by God because of His love. But the law was never intended. It was never intended to change the hearts of people. It was only to provide a guideline for the behavior of those who accepted the existence and wisdom of God Almighty. Some obeyed through their own wisdom, more obeyed through fear, and many obeyed because it was simply the way they learned to live growing up. Others did not obey as soon as they thought they could get away with their wants and desires without punishment. But God wanted much more. He wanted much more than just a straight obedience. God, the Father who loved all the people, wanted the people to love God back and to love one another. I've mentioned before, that the Pharisees were great students and debaters of the precise meaning of the law. They spent much of their life attempting to understand the law in depth and debating just how far those simple interactions and those simple instructions went. And I've also mentioned that the Pharisees actually worked throughout the centuries to weaken the law, to find ways around the clear meaning of the law, to find those loopholes that allowed a person to actually disobey the law but justify to others that he was obeying the law. I also mentioned the basic Sabbath law, which said that no one should work on the Sabbath, that time between sundown on Friday and sundown on Saturday. The Pharisees were naturally led to discuss, then, what's the precise meaning of work? And it was decided after much discussion, years of discussion, that a woman should not draw water from a well on Saturdays because this was her normal work. But men could draw water because this was not man's work. There were even debates over exactly when the Sabbath began. When did night begin on Friday evening? Was it at the setting of the sun or was it when a certain amount of darkness developed? And this argument was because some people wanted wanted more time to get home. They wanted to do more work in the fields. They wanted to keep the shop open 20 minutes longer. They wanted to do more of what was forbidden in front of their neighbors, but justify it. And what was argued about over the Sabbath law was argued over almost every word of those 613 commands. There were also great arguments over which commands were more important than the other commands. This was all put into a, a big encyclopedia type thing that was the size of an encyclopedia Britannica. All these discussions. And it was all to find legal loopholes which resulted in, fig- in people claiming, Today, that they're home on Saturdays as long as they stay on the island of Manhattan within the boundaries of a fishing line, run on telephone poles around the edges of Manhattan because that constitutes staying in their yard. Following the law became the measure of a great, of a great and good person, how well they could follow the law. Love for one another wasn't really necessary in this system. And so God sent Jesus to perform a reset on our idea of what God wanted from us. One day, there's a group of Pharisees, and they challenged Jesus with this question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's what Jesus told them. And so the question, of course, became, how do we love our neighbor? We've discussed this at length over the last few weeks, but there's a couple of more ways to love our neighbors, to love one another. You will recall that our meaning of love in the New Testament is very precise. The the ancient Greek language has four different words, at least four different words for love. There's eros, which is physical love. There's philia, which is brotherly love. There's storge, which is affection. And there is agape, which is unconditional love shown without thinking of any sort of payback or return. Agape is the word used in the New Testament to describe how we are to love one another, how we're to love our neighbors, how we're to love God, as well as how God and Christ love us. Now perhaps the easiest way to agape love one another is through the three aspects of apology, forgiveness, and trust. Apology recognizes that we make mistakes. Forgiveness recognizes that other people make mistakes and trust recognizes that even when someone makes repeated mistakes their heart is good, they're attempting to accomplish good and therefore we should expect that in the future they will be doing good. So how does this work? Perhaps I promise my friend Carl that I'll bring him 20 pounds of fried chicken to his event next Saturday. Now, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. Maybe I can't find the chicken, or Carl trusting me to cook chicken well is really a stretch. The power goes out, maybe. I get a call to the hospital. I burn myself and I have to go to the hospital. That could go wrong. My car wrecks and the chicken goes flying out the window. Or simply, I forgot about the chicken and get caught up watching the WVU-BYU game next Saturday. No matter what reason or excuse or whatever, if I don't deliver the chicken to Carl, I should apologize. And it doesn't matter if it was Carl's wife that hit my car and caused the chicken to go flying out the window. I should apologize because I did not do what I promised. In the same way, if I say something nasty or wrong or yell at Carl because of any reason, I should apologize. My bad behavior is not caused by anyone except me. And so I should apologize to the other person who is created just as much in God's image as I am. When we apologize, we remove some of the damage we've done to the other image of God that's our friend or neighbor or relative. In the same way, If Carl yells at me or forgets the pork ribs that he promised me, I should forgive him. Because as Jesus said when Peter asked, How many times we should forgive another? Is it seven times, Lord? Jesus replied, No, Peter. Forgive 70 times seven times. 490 490 times. In other words, don't keep track. We should always, always, always forgive one another. Jesus makes it clear that loving one another means we always forgive. But why do we always forgive? Even when someone else is always the cause of the trouble, the cause of more work, the cause of incompetent mistakes, we forgive because the other person is an image of God. Even if they're trying to be a jerk, we show agape love for the other person by forgiving them. And if we forgive them often enough, the other person will eventually see us as a different sort of person than most of the people in this world who don't forgive. A handful of people in this world, they'll just attempt to always push us around. But you know, the vast majority of people, they don't consider themselves to be jerks in their own mind. And they'll become truly apologetic and try their best to improve. I know. Because I used to be a jerk, and I've worked really hard at that. You see, people are a lot like dogs. You, 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 do you understand that? People are just a lot like dogs when it comes down to it. If you love them, they love you. If you kick at them and growl at them, they growl back. Why do you think this is so? Because the root cause of being a jerk The root cause of being a bully, the root cause of trying always to win and never apologize or forgive is fear. Fear of losing status, fear of admitting that they're wrong because to admit they're wrong might lead to shame. And when we forgive, when we apologize, when we take the blame, the other person is less fearful of us and what we might do or say that will harm their status or their reputation or their view of themselves. They consider us to be a nice person. And we can forgive, apologize, and take the blame always because we know that God loves us no matter what. And that's all that matters. For when our days on earth are finished, whether many years in the future or this afternoon, If we have realized that Jesus is the Son of God and has the power and the love to give us eternal life, if we've chosen to try our best to follow Jesus, then our future is secure. And we can bravely forgive anything from anybody, apologizing even when we've done nothing wrong, if it will help the other person. And we can take the blame because we're safe. And there's nothing to fear. God's got our back. And because of that, we can step out bravely into any situation. And that's where the third component shows itself. Trust. Because we trust in Jesus to handle our future, because we trust in in God's love for us, because we know deeply that God's got it, we can afford to trust other people just the same way God trusts us for if other people drop the ball God will pick it up or it doesn't need picked up if they do something wrong well they'll probably learn from that mistake and become stronger friends if we trust in God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit there's no need for fear And we can therefore step out in faith and forgive others, apologize to others, and ultimately that will lead to us learning to love other people and them learning to love us because they have nothing to fear from us. If you find you can't forgive another, ask yourself, what are you afraid of? Self, what are you afraid of? If you find you can't apologize to another, ask yourself, what is my fear? What am I so afraid of? And if you can't forgive yourself, then you can't love yourself. But that that also means this. Now, I want you to follow me through this to the end. It's a little complicated, but I think you can follow along. Jesus tells us that God always forgives us when we apologize and ask to be forgiven. Now, either we believe this or we don't believe this. So is the problem that we don't believe what Jesus has told us about God when we say we can't forgive ourselves? Probably not. For almost everybody I talk to always says something like this, I know God has forgiven me and the other person has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Well, here's the problem. When God forgives us, it's like God has changed the law just for us just for that incident in time. Scripture tells us that unlike with people, God forgives completely. So the incident's thrown to the bottom of the ocean. So which is more important and fundamental? The moral or ethical law that you broke or God's opinion of what happened? But we remember and we can't forgive ourselves. Why? because we think that the law is more important and more fundamental than God and God's opinion of us. But God created the law. And God has the power to change the law. You know, if we wanted to get the speed limit changed out here, the West Virginia State Legislature would get involved. It has the power to change the speed limit on a section of highway at any time. In the same way, God can change anything in the law of Moses. God can give grace to us and forgive any sin you've ever committed because God made the law that tells us what sin is. God can change the law just for you. And He does that all the time. Just that one incident that you did, He forgives it right then. Now you do something else, He'll forgive that too. He changes the law. Now, if you insist that God has forgiven you, but you can't forgive yourself, then you're actually saying that your opinion of your guilt is more important than God's opinion of your guilt. Are you smarter than God? Well, we like to do that, don't we? We like to say that our opinion is more important than God's opinion, for despite what we often say to one another, which is love the sinner but hate the sin, we actually think make sure that sinner feels shame for the sin god has forgiven for our opinion of another's guilt is more important than god's opinion right oh we're not honest enough to tell ourselves that so the final way to love one another and ourselves is to learn to com- to submit to god's judgment god's forgiveness god's ability to take every single image and give that image God's grace. Every person, including ourselves, our family, our neighbors, our friends, and even our worst enemies, God can forgive everyone. It's the devil that wants us to hate, to dislike, to argue, to fight. We need to submit to God and resist the devil. Trust God's judgments about yourself and about other people. If you truly want the freedom to love one another, we have to learn to bow our heads to the God who's created each of us. The God in whose image we and our friends and our most hateful enemies were created. Jesus said to love our neighbors as ourselves. But Jesus also said we're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. And that begins when we admit that God is more wise and powerful than we are and loves us much more than we love God or one another. Recognizing our place in the universe and God's place is key to obeying God and learning to love one another. You may remember back in the early days of Saturday Night Live, Chevy Chase used to crack a comment once in a while, boy, he looks young, doesn't he? The man, he would say, I'm Chevy Chase, <laughs> and you're not. <laughs> when we, ab- when, when we listen to that, it was so conceited, it became funny. But God has every right to say to us, I'm God, and you're not. When we absorb that fact from our head to our hearts, down to our toes, we're ready to love God. And that's the beginning of learning to love our neighbors learn to love one another practice it daily as it becomes automatic you'll know that you're truly following jesus and you're becoming a saint apologize forgive and trust
0: god forgive my sin in jesus name i've been born Set free mm-hmm. He said, freely, freely, you have received... Cedar Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Boley would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitomethosis.org, and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you, and God bless you in your life.